following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. There is a saying that is very popular in the church today. It is a direct quote from Muhammad Gandhi. It's theology for him. This is a saying that has become very popular and has caused incredible damage to the Christian church in America. This lie is taught on every street corner. We are advised by the powers that be that this should be our attitude. What am I speaking of? God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Nowhere in Scripture is that found. It is a lie. It is not true. And it has led us to a sentimental position that is destructive beyond measure. Whether you be of a Reformed persuasion or an Armenian persuasion, both fully in our forefathers renounced such foolishness There is no separation between a man and his sin. He is a sinner. You cannot separate. Your identity is found in your actions. I want to share several things with you today. A book entitled Repentance, the First Word of the Gospel, by Richard Owen Roberts, a man... I have dearly loved and interviewed and talked with. He writes, If you were asked the question, which does God send to hell? Sin or sinners? How would you answer? There really is no choice of answers, is there? It would be foolish to pretend that it is sin that is consigned to hell and punished. Indeed, it is unrepentant sinners 
who go there. We know that God hates idolatry, and yet we read, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 15. We know that God hates stubbornness and rebellion, and yet we read the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 11.20 We know that God hates crookedness, and yet we read, The crooked man is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 3.32 We know that God hates injustice, and yet we read, He who justifieth the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Who could, even for a moment, suppose that the proverb, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord, assuredly he will not be unpunished, is directed towards sin, but not at the sinner. The Lord even asks, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself? From the Lord, Second Chronicles 19, verse 2. Sinners who both love their sins and themselves find it very pleasant to be told that God loves them just the way they are. Now, this is another one of those sayings that I hear regularly repeated in Christian broadcasting and from Christian pulpits that God loves us unconditionally. Again, nowhere in Scripture is it taught that God loves us unconditionally. If God loved us unconditionally, there could be no place such as hell, and we would all then be universalists, believing that no person could lose their salvation, that eventually every person will be saved. And I've spoken many times with universalists who actually believe that, but it's not in the Scriptures. There's no basis in Scripture for teaching such a horrible belief. God has unfailing love, the Scriptures say, not unconditional love. And, of course, you are advised by the psychiatrists among the Christian fellowship to love your children unconditionally, to love your husband and your wife unconditionally. No, you can't. It's a fable. It's, it's a lie. There are consequences for sin. There is brokenness. Because of sin, there is separation because of sin. A thorough study of God's word will make this clear. Now, this has caused much damage to the body of Christ. It's caused men and women to buy into the lie that they can continue to walk in sin 
and still be loved by God. I listened to one preacher this morning. I wanted to hear clearly what is the current position among the top Reformed pastors in America. I won't name this this pastor and these this organization, but you would instantly recognize it. It is one of the most renowned. They're teaching that, yes, God hates the sinner, but by his grace, if you will say, I repent of my sin, yes, you will continue to sin, but somehow now you are immunized from your sin. And God no longer hates you. He loves you. And you won't go to hell for your sin. Now, again, that's a fable. It's not biblical. It's a lie. It's a sentimental lie that seems very pleasant for the sinner. But I challenge you to carefully study every reference to the love of God as well as to his wrath, his anger, his hatred and indignation in the entire scriptures and see for yourself if there is one single passage that disapproves or disagrees that God hates all sinners. The wrath of God is upon every sinner. That cannot be changed except by repentance, turning from our sin. Now, one of the most famous pastors in our American history was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was a Reformed theologian. On July 8, 1741, He preached a sermon in his church. They were bored. They went to sleep on him. Now, he was not a jazzy preacher. He read his manuscript. He was not easy to follow. Now, please, I want to say something to you. The truth is not smooth and easy. Sometimes you have to let your mind go to work and you have to think through these issues. And today is one of those days when you're not going to be able to go to sleep. You need to wake up and you need to hear what Jonathan Edwards has to say about sin. It is startling. It is terrifying. Now, I'm not going to read for you the entire sermon. I wish I had time, but I urge you to Google Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and today read the entire sermon prayerfully and carefully. Now, he is a Reformed theologian. He is not an Arminian. I am personally of the Arminian persuasion. I am one of those who greatly value the teaching and the ministry of John Wesley, in the Methodist Church. So, I'm not a Reformed theologian. But listen, listen carefully. 
on July 8, 1741. His sermon was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. His text was found in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Their foot shall slide in due time. In this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace, but who notwithstanding all God's wonderful works toward them remained void of counsel, meaning continued to walk, not taking the advice of Moses, but walking in sin having no understanding in them. Under all the cultivations of heaven, they brought forth bitter and poisonous fruit. As in the two verses next preceding the text, the expression I have chosen for the text, my foot shall slide or their foot shall slide in due time, seems to imply the following things relating to the punishment and destruction to which the wicked Israelites were exposed. Now please, any of you listening to this sermon who are walking in any known sin before God, I want you to know the wrath of God is upon you. The love of God is not upon you. And if you persist in this behavior, you will go to hell. We'll go to Scripture in a few moments, and I'll show you this in the Scripture. But first, I want you to hear this. This text implies, says Jonathan Edwards, that they were always exposed to sudden and unexpected destruction, as he that walks in a slippery place is every moment liable to fall. He cannot foresee one moment where he shall stand or fall the next, and when he does fall, he falls at once without warning, which is also expressed, and surely thou didst set them in a slippery place. Thou casteth them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation in such a moment? Now, another thing implied is that they are liable to fall of themselves without being thrown down by the hand of another. As he he that stands or walks on slippery ground needs nothing but his own weight to throw him down. That the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not yet come. For it is said that in due time or appointed time, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall, as they are inclined by their own weight. God will not hold them up in these slippery places any longer, but will let them go. And then at that very instant they shall fall into destruction, as he that stands on such a slippery declining ground on the edge of a pit. He cannot stand alone. When he is let go of, he immediately falls and is lost. I want you to hear this, please. You may be walking in sin today, having rebellion in your heart against the Almighty God, loving the things of darkness, and you seem secure. The only reason you have not been cast down into hell already is because of God's great patience and mercy. 
as he wants to give you an opportunity to repent and turn from your wickedness. The observation from the words that I would now insist upon is this. There is nothing that keeps wicked men at any moment out of hell but the near pleasure of God. By the mere pleasure of God, I mean his sovereign pleasure. His ability is not restrained by any obligation or hindered by any manner of difficulty any more than if nothing else but God's mere will had in the last degree or any respect whatsoever at hand in the preservation of wicked men one moment. The truth of this observation may appear by the following considerations. There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hand. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Sometimes an earthly prince meets with a great deal of difficulty to subdue a rebel who has found means to fortify himself and has made himself strong by the numbers of his followers. But it is not so with God. There is no fortress that is any defense from the power of God. Now, many hands may join in the rebellion. Vast multitudes of God's enemies combine and associate themselves, but they are easily all broken in pieces. They are as great heaps of light chaff before the whirlwind or large quantities of dry stubble before devouring flames. We find it easy to tread on and crush a worm that is seen crawling on the earth. So it is easy for us to cut a slender a slender thread that anything hangs by that just as easily is it easy as it as it is for God when he pleases to cast his enemies down to hell. What are we that we should think to stand before him? at whose rebuke the earth trembles and before whom the rocks are thrown down. The wicked deserve to be cast into hell. Let me say it another way. The rebellious sinner deserves to be cast into hell so that divine justice never stands in the way of your being cast into hell. You have no standing. It makes no objection against God's using his power at any moment to destroy you. Yea, on the contrary, justice calls aloud for an infinite punishment of their sins. Divine justice says of the tree that brings forth such grapes of Sodom, cut it down. The sword of divine justice is every moment brandished over their heads, and it is nothing but the hand of arbitrary mercy and God's mere will that holds it back. They are already under a sentence of condemnation to hell. They do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither, 
but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal, immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind, is gone out against them and stands against them, so that they are already bound over to hell. He that believeth not is condemned already, John 3.18. So that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. That is his place. From thence he is, John 8.23, ye are from beneath, and thither he is bound. It is the place that justice and God's word call for, and the sentence in his unchangeable law assigns every sinner to that place. Now, I want you to read it carefully and pray over it. Now, the grave danger that we face is when we say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. We are separating a person's identity, who he is, from what they do. That's clearly not biblical. We are what we do. We do what we are. A sinner is going to do sinful things. It is the fruit of a wicked heart. So if you now say, I'm converted. I've come to Jesus and I'm hiding in Jesus. But you still walk in rebellion and sin and you've not been made into a new creature. You have deceived yourself. And you are bound for hell, even though you call yourself a Christian. And you believe that the righteousness of Jesus is imputed to you. That is a trick of the devil. It is simply not true. Please, I'm not trying to press some theological position that is equal to other theological positions. This is what the scripture teaches. Let me share just a few of the scriptures. In Psalm, the fifth chapter, I'll begin with verse 4. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. Well, what if he's a converted wicked man? Can he dwell with God? No. No. Because God has provided by the blood of Jesus the means by which a man or woman can be transformed into the very likeness of Jesus. But they must be crucified with Christ. They must die to this worldly, carnal flesh nature. They must become a new creature. And that is what Jesus offers you. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Did you hear that? It's saying that God hates all who do wrong. Now, in God's great mercy, according to Jonathan Edwards, you do not experience that hate by being cast into death and cast into hell. Instead, you experience the mercy and patience of God. 
But if you're continuing to walk in your sin and take for granted that in Jesus, your sins were forgiven and you can walk in any way you choose to walk, then you are trying the patience of God. And when your cup is full, the Holy Spirit will leave you and you will be left desolate waiting for the judgment of hell to come upon you. It says, you destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. There's another scripture. Proverbs chapter 6. Let me begin reading with verse 16. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Number one, haughty eyes or arrogance. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. A false witness who pours out lies. A man who stirs up dissension among the brothers. Proverbs six sixteen through 19. Now, let me just ask, please. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Number one, haughty eyes, arrogance. Is God going to cast haughty eyes into hell and leave the man untouched? Can you separate haughty eyes from the man himself or the woman herself? Of course not. A lying tongue? Is God going to cast a lying tongue into hell, but allow the man who possesses that lying tongue to waltz into heaven? No. Just common sense. You know that's impossible. Hands that shed innocent blood? If you support abortion, God hates you. And you are hellbound. For you are a murderer because you agree with the wickedness that is going on in the murder of babies. Is there anything more beautiful, more innocent before God than a child? If you agree with the shedding of the baby's blood, you are guilty, and God hates you. A heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil. Hey, let's go party tonight. Let's go. Let's go wild tonight. Let's have some fun. God hates you. There's no other way to put it. God's judgment is resting upon you. And when your cup is full, the Holy Spirit will withdraw 
will stop holding you up and you will will soon slip and slide into utter destruction. I've seen it happen time after time after time. Do you lie? Do you stir up dissension in your family? God hates you. Now, let's be clear. There is one way out of the hatred and the wrath of God that is upon you. And that's why the word repentance is the first word of the gospel. Through repentance, you can be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the old man of sin can be removed from your life. Let me go to another scripture. Ezekiel, the 33rd chapter. I'll begin with verse 10. Son of man, say to the house of Israel, This is what you are saying. Our offenses and our sins weigh us down, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That's what we're offered in Jesus Christ, a way to turn from our ways, from our wicked behaviors, our wicked thoughts, our wicked heart. We're offered a way to be made righteous in truth by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the law. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? And then in verse 17 of that same chapter 33, the way of the Lord is not just. That's what they're saying. You're not fair, God. But it is their way that is not just. If a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does evil, he will die for it. And if a wicked man turns away from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live by doing so. Yet, O house of Israel, you say, the way of the Lord is not just but I will judge each of you according to your own way. I will judge each of you for your way. Now, some of you may be saying, Pastor, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. What does John 3.16 say? Well, let's look at the context. The context is a Jewish man, a rabbi, a very powerful and wealthy rabbi. He comes to Jesus at night because he does not want to appear to be honoring Jesus, and he does not want to be dishonored. So he comes to Jesus at night. 
He compliments Jesus. He offers him honor. Jesus does not play the honor-shame game. He answers, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In other words, you can't escape your sinful nature in any way but by being born from above. This is not a self-help deal. Now, I know many people who have become Christians, cultural Christians, and they have changed some of their wicked behavior. They have stopped fornicating. They've stopped drinking. They've cleaned up some of the more gross sins in their lives. And now they call themselves a Christian. And now they say, when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He just sees himself. A wicked lie. A shell game. God doesn't play games. When God looks at you, he's going to see what you have allowed him to create in you. And if you are a new creature in Christ, he's made you righteous by faith in him and in his blood. If you have not, your heart is still full of evil. You have changed the outward behavior, but you are still an utterly wicked man or woman, and you are still hell-bound. That's why I've said many times on this broadcast, hell will be filled with people who protest and say, oh, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I went to church. I paid my tithe. I'm I'm holy. Jesus made me holy when he when he imputed his grace to me. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. That's not in Scripture. So we come to this incredible verse in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Oh, see, Pastor, he loves the wicked. Doesn't say that. It doesn't say, for God so loved the wicked that he gave his one and only son. It says he loved the world. It's his world. He created it. And God has mercy for his creatures that were stolen from him by the devil. And in that mercy, listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If he came to save the world, what did he come to save the world from, if not sin? Whoever does not believe stands condemned already. And then I want you to look at another passage in John, the third chapter, and this is the counter to John 3.16. This is John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son or disobeys the Son, the Son, will not see life, life, for God's wrath remains on him. If you're walking in sin today, 
the wrath of God is on your life. If you're walking in pride and arrogance, if you're passing judgments on others, God's wrath is on you. God's wrath is on you. I want to show you that. Let's go to the book of Romans. We recently spoke about this, but I want you to see it in the context in which I'm teaching today. Romans, the first chapter. The wrath of God in verse 18. The wrath of God, the anger of God, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. The foolish hearts of the American church has been darkened because... We have believed the lie that we can continue to walk in sin and be saved. Are you saved? Oh, yes, I'm saved. I'm a follower of Jesus. Do you still walk in sin before God? Oh, yes, I still, I always walk in sin and I always will walk in sin because I don't have any power to not walk in sin. You lie. You're passing judgments on the blood of Jesus Christ, and you're making it of no more value than the blood of bulls and goats in the Old Covenant. What do you think happens to a man or woman who tramples on the blood of Jesus Christ and makes it of no value? You foolishly say, well, when I die, then I'll be changed. I'll be transformed. Yes, that's what it does say. In a moment, we'll be transformed into heavenly bodies but not character. Not character. Death is not my Savior. Is death your Savior? Is death what changes you and makes you a righteous man or woman? Not me. I'm made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm made righteous by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes and convicts and causes me to repent humbly with tears and weeping before him until I know I'm clean, I'm washed, I'm whole. Until you're willing to deal honestly with your sin, you have no possibility of salvation. no possibility of being saved. And you can say on that day, oh, but that's what my pastor taught me. And the Lord will say, how many Bibles did you have in your house? Did you ever carefully read the book of Romans? Oh, oh, I got to chapter 7, and chapter 7 says that Paul still struggled with sin. I'm like Paul. No, you're not. Paul didn't struggle with sin. 
Chapter 7 does not teach that Paul struggled with sin. He struggled with sin before he met Jesus Christ on that road to Damascus. But after that, he did not struggle with sin. Did he make mistakes? Yes. Was he perfectly mature? No. Did he sin against God? No. He walked righteous before God, as is the privilege of every Christian today, to walk righteous before God in truth, not in make-believe, not in fantasy life. I don't care what you've been taught. Go let the Holy Spirit teach you in the Scriptures, and you'll find that what I'm teaching is straight from the Word of God. Now, in chapter 3 of the book of Romans, he makes the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. He says there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their way in the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before them. You say, Pastor, that's not who I am. That's who the natural man is. And if you are still not born from above and still walking in sin, if the Holy Spirit were to withdraw his restraining power from your life to try to give you an opening by which you could repent, this is a description that would be accurate of who you are. If you're honest with me, you'll have to admit that the Holy Spirit strives with you. And some of you have been lied to by modern pastors, and you've been told, oh, you're okay, you're saved. And you took comfort in that. And when you took comfort in that, you made God angrier with you. And you increased the punishment on your life. This Romans 3 chapter is an accurate description of every human person. If the Holy Spirit's restraining power were to be withdrawn from your life. Repentance is a gift that God gives to every man in this New Testament era. Every one of us have been given a measure of faith. And we must be crucified now with Christ. And we must humble our hearts. We must turn to the living God of heaven. Now, I want you to look with me at Romans, the fifth chapter. I'm going to begin reading with verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. 
While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, that is, made righteous, dikasune, it's to be made righteous. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men, because all sinned. Before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account when there's no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. My brother, my sister, there's only one possibility for you. There's only one possibility for you. To go into the presence of God and get on your face and remain there in humble repentance, turning to God and turning away from the carnal nature and asking Him to come and give you that full new birth to restore you to the likeness of Jesus. If you are struggling with sin and you keep going back to it time after time and you have no power to resist it, according to the sixth chapter of Romans, you have not been born yet from above and you must go and secure that blessing or you are hellbound because the wrath of God rests on every man who sins against him. He hates you in your sin. But he has opened for you a way of redemption. Jesus on that cross carried our sins. By his stripes we are healed. By Jesus' shed blood, we are literally made righteous. We are restored. There is no time for cheap Christian faith. We are entering a most difficult time in earth's history. And you will be found guilty and cast into hell if you trust in the false words that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. If you are a sinner, God hates you. And his wrath rests upon you. And he is doing everything in his power to call you out of that place of bitterness and hatred. He's trying in every way possible by the power of the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sin and cause you to humble your heart before him and cry out to him and say, Jesus, I see my sin. I take responsibility for it. I am guilty. Will you do that? Almighty God, I pray for every person listening to this broadcast today. I ask, Lord, that they would escape from your anger and wrath, that they would not be cast into hell, 
that instead they would come and fully submit to you, give up their worldly life, give up their worldly possessions, give up everything into your hand, Jesus, and that you would make them anew with a new character, a new perspective, a new desire, a desire now to come and belong to you and to serve you. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I hope you hear how serious I am with you today. We're going to talk more tomorrow about repentance. The rest of the week we'll deal with repentance. It's the first and the last word of the gospel. I'd love to hear from you. Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, or you can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. God does not love the sinner and hate the sin. If you're a sinner, God hates you. But there is a way of escape. Take it today. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon.